As we get started today, we'll be opening to page 32 in Ministry, Word and Sacraments, an Enchiridion by Martin Kamnitz. We are still looking at the Office of Holy Ministry, what the scriptures and what the Lutheran Reformers taught in regard to this. And we've got another six, seven pages to go in which we'll be going rather slow, simply word by word. If you thumb ahead to page 39, you'll see that we enter part two, which is the last part of substance, believe it or not, in this text. Part two takes us almost to the conclusion of the text, and that's going to be on the word and sacraments. We will maybe start slow in that section, but then pick and choose a little bit in regard to what we read and what we discuss. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so I had opportunity to reflect this morning in the little mini-homily in our divine service on Jeremiah 23 and, of course, the false prophets, those false prophets whom God did not send, but they ran, to whom he did not speak, and yet they prophesied, etc. So very apropos of our text, but it allowed me opportunity to zoom all the way out and reflect for a minute, which I want to do briefly here for those of you who weren't at the service or those of you joining online, that the office of the holy ministry has to be understood as part of a larger context. And very briefly, you remember that the world was created by God through what? The Word. And the world was ruined by the devil through what? The Word, or His Word. And so you have this entire framing of truth versus lie, of wisdom versus foolishness, of Word of God versus the opposite of God's Word. Make sense? So the office of the Holy Ministry is a crowning and glorious gift that God gives to His church far and above the gifts that preceded, including the immediate call of the prophets and the many and various ways that God spoke to His people by the prophets of old. These are inferior relative to the gift that he gives to us in the office of the holy ministry. Because in the office of the holy ministry, beyond any shadow of a doubt, one can determine who has been sent by God, who has been called by God into this office and vocation to speak and preach his word to the people. We can't take that for granted. This is one of the ultimate New Testament gifts that God gives to us, that we might have at least that level of surety in regard to whom we should listen. As the war of words goes on, of course, you have God and his prophets against Satan and his false prophets, and they're myriad. They always outnumber the true prophets of God. Most pernicious of all are those double agents, as it were. They're 
prophets of Satan, but they pretend to be prophets of God and to speak on God's behalf, the whole while thwarting God's word, overturning, twisting God's word. And then, of course, as we zoom out, we see the big picture purpose of all of this, that God speaks now into the world that men might be saved. And the Lutheran reformers in the Augsburg Confession, that foundational document, put this so well that the article of justification by grace through faith, apart from works, solely on account of Christ, Article 4, is followed by Article 5, the office of the holy ministry, so that men may have this faith, be given this faith which saves apart from works, this faith in Christ alone. God gives the gift of the pastoral office. And then what we've been talking about so far as we kind of go down the chain here, so to speak, are the two ways in which God guarantees the men in the office insofar as it goes. That is, very briefly, you have to have the approval of the church and the ministerium. The approval of the ministerium is traditionally given with the laying on of the hands and the recognition by the the pastors, that's what I mean, the ministerium, that this person fits the qualifications as best we can tell. We vetted this person as best we can tell. They know God's word. They promise to speak God's word. Indeed, that's what the ordination vows are all about. You vow to uphold this word of God. Okay. And then the other part that we've seen is that the congregation, of course the church at large, but more specifically the congregation calls a man who is qualified for the office, who has been ordained and approved by the ministerium, then that congregation calls, that is, they give their affirmation to this man. And that is what we've been talking about in regard to the mediate call that God calls through the means of the congregation and calls a man to be a pastor there in that place. So that if you're following with all of this, you can be sure that the particular man that God has set into a particular office at a particular church is there by divine order and divine design. All right, what happens if that man teaches falsely or lives falsely or refuses to do his duty or is incapable of doing his duty or something like this, okay? Well, then clearly that man has been unfaithful to his vows and is judged as being no longer qualified to hold that ministry in that place. And so he ought to be deposed from that ministry in that place. Okay. But those are going to be the categories and criteria by which you might remove a man from his divinely appointed office. And we, that's why we use the language of divine call, because God has called that individual, God has appointed that individual. That person is to be God's man, in that place, proclaiming his word faithfully. And if he fails to do that, he may be deposed. But insofar as he doesn't fail and he continues to conduct that office faithfully, he's to be heeded. Make sense? This is a great blessing and benefit because how are you to tell who you're supposed to listen to? And that's sort of the first step is, should I? has God sent this person? Has God called this person. If not, already I don't have that kind of relationship with this person, where that person is my pastor or called to serve me in the office of the holy ministry. 
right? So that would be the first question. And the second question is, is, is he faithful? Is he faithful in that task? Okay, so that'll kind of bring us up to speed. I see a hand rising in the back, so let's go ahead and take that comment. Um, and then I simply wanted to give that bigger picture as we uh, jump into um, this next section uh, in regard to the ministry. Yeah, please. So I don't want to beleaguer or get into any specifics at all. Okay. But how does that really work? Particularly judging somebody not being faithful and the ability to remove them from office. I've seen it twice fail. So how it sounds really good. Sounds like exactly what we should be doing. But in actually using it with the higher-ups, particularly in our Lutheran Synod, I've seen it fail twice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact of the matter is sin and corruption infects all of this, and at times it doesn't function, just like anything else, times it doesn't function the way God intends it to function and states that it should function. And even even the way we all agree, even if only on a human level, that it should function. And that is sadly the case. So, what do you do if a man, and I don't know, again, any, any of the circumstances here, but let's say hypothetically a man is teaching falsely or a man has fallen into some kind of like disqualifying sin, which is usually like a very uh, public or egregious kind of sin or a sin which is um, of its essence of profound violation of trust or something like that that erodes his ability to do the ministry in that place. Okay. That then, it is incumbent upon, it, within our system, of course, the congregation itself. You'd li- I mean, you'd like to think that the man himself would have the integrity as a Christian, as a royal priest, to say, yes, I fell into this, yeah, or, or um, yes, I don't teach what the Book of Concord teaches any longer, I don't believe it, and thus s- exclude himself from the office of the holy ministry in that place. I can no longer keep my ordination vows. For example, a a man with integrity is going to say, I should step down. All right, given that that's not the case, and very frequently that's not the case when someone's fallen into manifest sin, there's a kind of blindness and arrogance that goes along with that. It's incumbent upon the congregation. And all of our congregations have means and modes of handling a circumstance like that. It falls large in most LCMS congregations. It falls uh, mostly upon the board of elders. Second to that might be the council, and there are going to be governing documents, particularly the bylaws of the congregation. But of course, the constitution is going to come into play because that's going to have the doctrinal content in it. But the bylaws are going to describe what manner of procedure or due process needs to take place for the deposition of a pastor. Correct. 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 And I mean, I, I'm sure most of us in this room have seen one level or another of that kind of corruption. And in some cases, sadly, the pastor heaps sin upon sin 
by appealing to the emotions of the congregation and manipulating his way into either staying or splitting the congregation. So, such a wonderful marker, measuring stick, yardstick, when we're looking at things, because peddling can be so subtle. Mm-hmm. And if we just proclaim the word mm-hmm. purely, then we're not in error. Oh, right. And it's just peddling versus proclaiming. It's just so profound. Yeah, I think that that is a very important distinction. If I'm not mistaken, Chemnitz is drawing that out from the scriptures himself. Um, so that peddling versus proclaiming distinction. And yes, sadly, sometimes we can see pastors engaged in peddling. Um, you know, St. Paul deals with that. And in some cases, even if, a, even if a man is peddling within the office the word of God, let's and if we put a definition on that, he's preaching the word for his own self-interest and his own kind of profit. I can't do anything else. I'm not qualified to do anything else. I'll take a giant pay cut if I leave this you know, job, otherwise I would. That's the kind of description of someone who might be peddling God's word. Insofar as they preach the truth of God's word, that can still be received beneficially. And St. Paul will even say, you know, whether they preach out of envy or jealousy or desire for wealth, this kind of thing, at least they're preaching Christ. And so if, it's, if they are, right, if they are. And you can still receive that profitably even though they're unfaithful in their office, let's say, or they've got the wrong motivations, let's say. Now, yeah, it is a tricky one. Now, and, and I, again, I think that the argument would be as long as that man remains qualified for the office, even if you have reason to suspect he's a peddler of God's word, it doesn't immediately mean you should depart from him. Um, the office is important. I mean, remember what Christ says, like they sit in Moses' seat, listen to them, but don't do as they do. So there's, there's men who are in the office, but obviously contrary to Christ and hypocritical in, in their deeds and what they do. And Christ is, is encouraging his followers, his disciples, to be respectful of the office. So that would be one case in which we could be respectful of the office, even if we suspect or have fact that the man is there for the wrong reasons. As long as he's conducted, obviously that's a problem, but as long as he's conducting his duty, the effect is mitigated. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I, the heart's a mess, uh, you know, in every, in every sinner. That's true. Um, I think we can, we can make a distinction between that sort of absolute way and then is this man qualified is this man blameless remember blameless is different than sinless and we can make a distinction there on the basis of those qualifications given now just to round out the conversation i know it's probably longer than you intended but if the congregation fails to discipline or can't discipline or gets locked up it can and should appeal 
to the broader church. And so that would look like, um, you know, due process. So if you think, you know, Pastor Rody's been teaching this heresy for 15 years and I've tried to correct him several times and it's fallen on deaf ears, you, what you want to do is, um, you know, schedule a meeting with an elder and talk to the elder. The elder will set things in motion, how they need to be set in motion, okay? Um, a failure at the congregational level then proceeds to the circuit visitor. So our, our congregations are organized by circuit, and so that's sort of the next stage up, is the one who's been elected by, um, well, and I, th- I think in our case, appointed. It's all by human doing, not by divine doing, but appointed by the district president to be the circuit visitor. But he's that next man. And then above him, the district president, and above him, the synodical president. And so you can try to pursue this insofar as you can to get recourse. But our congregational autonomy, for all of its strengths, does have this weakness that if a majority of the congregation says, um, we don't care that this man is unqualified, or even though he's manifestly unqualified, they say, we don't believe he is, and they're just simply in error, they can, so to speak, hold the property (laughs) and conduct themselves as the congregation in that place, even though they're manifestly in error on that point. What should you do if you're part of that kind of circumstance? Uh, Walther, the president of our synod, would tell you to flee to another church. So that's what you do. That's the faithful response in that kind of circumstance. Yeah, just real quickly, I'll just give you the other side of the coin. Uh, years and years ago, we had a pastor here who was very faithful, and his daughter ran away from home for three or four days. They didn't know where she was. And he took this so seriously that it wasn't his sin but his daughter's that he removed himself from office, didn't preach for probably three weeks, and went through a process with the circuit counselor and the district president and the congregation, the elders. I wasn't an elder then, but uh, of kind of a, a rebuilding or a, you know, um, he felt he needed to go through this process, that, and that's how seriously he took it. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, a good was, example there. Yeah, amazing uh, man. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that, a positive example. And, and there are times, you know, there are many ways in which the pastoral office is no different than other vocations, but there are some ways in which it is different. And one of those ways is when you're going through great personal struggle and strife and the spiritual dynamics thereof, it's not like you can still go to work and get on the computer and do the accounting project or go get in the van and drive to a house and unclog the pipe. You know, it, it has an effect on you and your ability to do ministry. And so where there is great personal turmoil, if at all possible, it is good, even if it's not disqualifying in any way, it can be very good for the pastor to take some time away, get that business sorted so he can be in the right spiritual state to go about his office and ministry. And I think that's a good example of yeah, and there are times, of course, where the congregation, you know, there, there's reasons why this is all official and why there's uh, 
ordination vows and why there is a, I hate the word, but an installation service, you know, as if a pastor was a refrigerator, but an installation service where the pastor vows and the congregation vows. And that can all be very helpful. It, it, it's analogous. It's, I don't, I mean, don't take this the wrong way, and I think there, is, there are many wrong ways to take this, but in the same way that you have a marriage and two people vow and it's public and very serious, and that's um, for richer, for poorer, there's an analogy there to the commitment that a pastor makes to a congregation, a congregation to a pastor, that if the congregation falls on hard times, the pastor doesn't go, okay, well, off to an easier congregation. And likewise, if the pastor falls on hard times, the congregation doesn't go, oh boy, this isn't, this isn't going to work for us. Out he goes. For, for what reason? For what biblical reason? Nah, he, no, he's just struggling. Off he goes. We need somebody who's a winner. <laughs> so, so there are abuses there to be had. And one of the things that we can do for each other as pastors and as congregation is stick with each other through thick and thin, help one another, build each other up. Um, and again, we're outside of that realm of like, he's no longer qualified. No, he's still qualified. In some cases, sometimes pastors will even be too hard on themselves and say, I'm disqualified. Um, you know, I, I'm resigning my ministry on account of this. And the board of elders and the congregation need to step up and say, you can't do that because you're not actually disqualified and your resignation would be a sin. God's still calling you here to this place. You need to realize that we support you and you'll get through this and you need to continue on. So there are times in which the congregation and the pastor can be very valuable to each other in sorting out the objectivity of the nature of the divine call. Please. This is kind of an aside, but how do some of these guidelines apply to other offices in the church Mm -hmm. other than the pastor? Great question. So, again, we're going to make this key distinction that other offices in the church are of human origin. All right, so there's some Latin phraseology, uh, de iuri divino, that's of divine origin, and de iuri humano, that's of human origin. That's the most important distinction when asking a question like this. So, uh, de iuri divino is the pastoral office. Okay? No other office in the church is established by God. Every other office in the church is established de iuri humano. Doesn't mean it's um, unimportant. It can be very important, necessary even for the life and functioning of that congregation. So when we're talking about other offices in the congregation, like to be specific, ours, congregational president or other positions on the council, head elder or other elders on the elder board. These are humanly devised offices with humanly devised standards. Now, we do have those standards, and those are written out in the bylaws of our congregation. So you need to meet certain qualifications. But again, all of this is of human origin, that you need to meet certain qualifications uh, in order to hold these offices. Okay, so specifically for the elders in our bylaws is something akin to the qualifications that you find in the book of Acts uh, for deacons. 
Again, an office that you can see is not created by Christ, not de iuri divino, but by the church, de iuri humano, and yet is necessary and wonderful and a good office, the office of deacon. They even lay out qualifications for the office of deacon. That's very much analogous to our elder and or council. And in fact, for our elders, we do use those qualifications of the deacon or some version of them to make sure that men are qualified to serve as elders in the congregation. So does that answer your question? How about below that? Well, below that, our bylaws give the description because, again, it's the congregation that's creating those offices. So the congregation can set whatever bounds it likes in terms of uh, duties or qualifications or whatever else. Yes, yes, people can be deposed or be asked to step down from uh, a congregational position. And again, yes, there if there were some sort of infraction of the qualifications in the bylaws, but also if there was, and usually this is just, it's one and the same, but if there was some egregious thing that even if it weren't covered in the bylaws but was definitely a scandal and this would just be the best thing for everyone involved, then that could go forward as well. Sure. Sure. Okay, I feel like I'm going through Pandora's box, but this is haunting me in the back of my mind. Would you please explain King David's situation? Sure. The first thing to note is that King David isn't a pastor, and he's not called to the pastoral office. So it's a categorical mistake anytime anyone says, well, okay, Pastor Jones had an affair, David had an affair. David stayed in the office of king. Pastor Jones should stay in the office of pastor. There's a category error there taking place. The two offices are not the same, and the qualifications for those offices are not the same. Does that, maybe that answers your question sufficiently? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think so. I think so. If, if there's any follow-up, I'm happy to entertain it, but probably I've said enough so there. So if a prophet from a special office, hmm. would he be in that special office? Or? Yeah, okay, so the question was if the Old Testament prophet would be in a similar office, held to similar qualifications or something like that, and I, I think the short answer is not really. There's nothing directly analogous to the pastoral office in the Old Testament, you have, probably from an Old Testament frame, you'd view, you'd view the clergy people as the Levitical priesthood. But that's where there's no real analogy. They're largely doing sacrifices. Maybe they're doing some preaching and teaching. I wouldn't doubt that in the least. And then you've got the prophets running around. Um, what you have after the Babylonian captivity, and uh, of course the temple is rebuilt, but you... It's in this time period that you really have the birth of the synagogues. And at the synagogues, what they're doing isn't sacrifice, but they're reading, they've either got some scroll or fragment of some biblical scroll, they're reading from that and teaching from that. So what you can see is at that time, you have a prototype in the synagogue with the service of the word, a local preaching of the word. You have the prototype of what will be the Christian church. But it's really kind of born in that age and in that era. And that's where you kind of have a rabbi uh, or some sort of official, you know, recognized title and recognized status within the community um, so that not just anybody stands up and speaks in the synagogue. 
someone recognized by the community, recognized by the leadership to be worthy of speaking in the synagogue. It might not be as official as we have it in the, with the pastoral office, um, but you can see rudimentary it taking shape and form in that era. The prophets are doing their speaking, but where are they speaking? Everywhere. <laughs> so that's where they're not quite analogous to the pastoral office either, because the prophet isn't just prophesying on, let's say, Sabbath, Saturday, at, at the local service. A prophet is prophesying occasionally and everywhere, episodically, if that makes sense. Frequently in places like the city gate. Um, I think you see more, par- more overlap between the prophetic office and the apostolic office in that respect, where the a- apostles are freewheeling, not bound to any one congregation specifically. That's more like a prophet. They're not bound to any one, generally speaking, they're not bound to any one specific location. They're going about with the word of the Lord. Does that kind of help? Yeah, so there's not a direct one-to-one parallel between the Old Testament, like priest and prophet, and against the New Testament office of the Holy Ministry. It's a little bit of a blurring of the two and yet distinct in the pastoral office. Not that we're offering sacrifices, but that we're distributing the sacrifice of Christ made once and for all, and that we're proclaiming the word, but limited to that place to which we've been called. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah, please. I can tell people are interested in this, because, and I can tell that we haven't done a good job collectively, and I, I, I'm saying that so that I don't overly humble myself. I guess I have not done a good job. <laughs> Thus, we have all these questions and um, all this interest uh, popping up over the Office of the Holy Ministry. Yeah, please. It's wonderful. I can, in, in the scriptures, it says the fathers are to, you know, as they're going along, to explain to their children and so forth. Mm-hmm. So the word would be passed on through the fathers and the homes. Yeah. So was there any stipulation for, well, I, at one time weren't the scriptures read publicly at some point in the, in the relationship to the wilderness, traveling through the wilderness? Was there anything where, you know, the scriptures were um, y- yes, is the short answer. I don't know how maybe best to narrate that in, a, in an efficient way, but of course, Moses pens the first five books, and they have those books, and that's really kind of the Bible uh, for quite some time. In, in some respects, the same way that the Gospels possibly with the addition of Acts or Revelation, but the Gospels, let's just say that, are the core of the New Testament and everything else is almost kind of commentary on or derived from the contents of those Gospels. You have roughly the same thing happening with the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, and everything that follows, flowing from and being a commentary of. So that Pentateuch or Torah being the heart of the Old Testament, just as the Gospels are the heart of the New, I think that that's a generally true um, statement. So yes, they have that. And that word is around and being preached and proclaimed, no doubt about it. And in fact, it's the prophets, even as they're prophesying, are frequently alluding to those scriptural stories and using those to push forward the point that Yahweh has for the contemporary hearers. 
Yeah, and uh, and of course, is I can't remember who it is. I think it's Hezekiah. They like full on lose the Bible. <laughs> remember, I, I can't. I always get it confused if it's Josiah or Hezekiah. Those are the two great reformers. I think it's Hezekiah. I'll stand gladly stand corrected on that point if not. But um, yeah, they the, the Torah had gotten buried somewhere in the temple, and they hadn't been using it for some years. And they went to cleanse the temple of all the idols and everything else. And they found the scrolls under Agape Hall and were like, what's this? And the king hears it and tears his robes and, is, you know, and it brings about great reform. So that is, that is kind of a fascinating thing with, if you look at, and, I, and I'm convinced too, there are so many episodes in the history of, of God's people in the Old Testament as well as in the church, that there are countless reformations and reformational events that take place, whether it's in a, in a very specific and small locale or maybe even broader, that don't even make the pages of the scriptures of the pages of history. The ones that do are large and or larger, and the one thing that you find always there is it, is it goes along with a rediscovery of the word always driven by the word. So I think, uh, sorry, this is a tangent, but it's an important one. Have you, reformations that are from God never come like this. Lick your finger, test the winds of culture. Oh, there's this thing called feminism going on. Oh, we should have women pastors. Let's reform the church. Let's go back into scripture and bend what we need to bend and twist what we need to twist and reread what we need to reread in order to make this happen. That is not a godly reform. It is not beginning with the word of God. It is beginning with something that's happening in culture and then being foisted upon the word of God. All right, now I bring up that example because it's an easy one, but there are countless such examples in our day and age where we're told the church must change or die and the origin of it has not, it's not like somebody was just reading the Bible and going, oh, Paul actually says that women should be pastors in this chapter and verse. Let's lead a reform. That's not what happens. But the true and godly reforms, whether in the Old Testament, the New Testament, or the history of the church up into the very present, is, hey, wait a minute, this is what God's word says, and we don't believe this, or we're not doing this. That's a true reform. And it's always centered on God's word, driven by God's word, and that is where you can see if it's a godly reform or not. So Hezekiah, Josiah, both heavily based upon the word of God. Uh, Christ, his reform, I think uh, the author of Hebrews calls him a reformer, heavily predicated upon the word of God and the fact that they're not read the, his contemporaries aren't reading the word of God correctly. They've invented a new religion. And likewise, then, throughout many different smaller reformations in church history, it's always, no, this is what the Word of God says over and against this new novel teaching that's coming from a false prophet. Yeah. So sorry for that digression, but as you start to see these patterns in the scriptures and in the history of the church, it makes a lot of sense in terms of interpreting our contemporary world. We can see that frame in our own time, that if it's a reformation based on some guy's newfangled idea, you should probably dismiss it. <laughs> All right, did I see another hand? Or are we ready to? Yeah, okay, please. One more in the back. Yeah, going back a week or two um, to, uh, I guess, number 14, uh, it 
relates the prophets to the apostles as having immediate calls as opposed to immediate calls. True, yeah. So the prophets God calls directly, not through a church or through Israel. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, they're willing to go, uh, send me, send me, here I am. Uh, And in other cases, they're not willing to go, and they head for Joppa. (laughs) (laughs) So you you actually find between these poles... Uh, it's it's really kind of a beautiful and fantastic thing. If you look at the personalities of the prophets, you find a spectrum. You find some who are absolutely gung-ho, willing to do it. And then you find sort of degrees of excitement down to like in kind of indifferent, slightly annoyed, wishing they wouldn't do it, getting on a boat in the opposite direction. <laughs> I can't remember off the top of my head, I should know the Minor Prophets better, but one of them was like, as he was appealing to the people to whom God sent him, he's like, look, I'd much, I'm a farmer. You think I want to be here doing this with you? I want to be back in my fields, planting my crops and enjoying the harvest. <laughs> Which I think is great. I think that's great. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so, so both the prophets and the apostles have immediate calls. God calls them directly to the task. Christ calls them directly to the task. Pastors to the highest possible percentile um, without being absolute are called uh, immediately, that is, through the church. Through the ministerium and the church. Okay? Very good. So, jumping into question 20 on page 32. Here's the question posed by Chemnitz. And it does follow up on 19, so just really quickly, 19, show with statements and examples of Scripture that they who are legitimately called through regular means are called and sent by God himself. And then, of course, you can just glance at that and see all the Scriptures cited by Chemnitz. So they are, in fact, if they're called immediately, this is in keeping with the Scriptures. Okay. And it ends kind of with this idea of Paul likewise declares that God gives and places in the church not only apostles who are called immediately, but also teachers and pastors who are called immediately. All right, may he then, question 20, who has been properly chosen for the ministry by a immediate call, refer and apply also to himself, each according to his own measure, Equally, as well as also the prophets and the apostles, the promises of grace help power and divine efficacy in the ministry. Here's the answer. I think in short, in, like to just like shorten that, is the call and the quality of the call essentially the same, whether it's immediate or immediate? I think that's effectively the question. Chemnitz answer, the prophets and apostles who were sent by an immediate call indeed have many and great prerogatives in accordance with a larger measure of divine gifts. But the promises of grace, help, power, and divine efficacy in the ministry also apply nonetheless, according to each one's measure, to those who have been immediately called in a legitimate way. So short answer, yes. Um, Longer answer, yes, but look at the prerogatives and the larger measure of divine gifts given upon the apostolic office or even the prophetic office if you like. Um, 
I am given to preach the word, not stretch out my arms and part the Pacific Ocean for you. Okay, um, I am given to administer the sacraments, not have my shadow fall upon you and you're healed of whatever illnesses you're suffering from. You see how prophets and apostles are given gifts in greater measure. The scope of the pastoral office is de facto narrower. I'm not given per se to cast out demons. I'm not given per se to heal illnesses. I'm not given per se even to conduct marriages. (laughs) I'm given per se to proclaim the word of God and its truth and purity and administer the sacraments in accordance with Christ's institution. It's a much narrower scope of the office and uh, a narrower degree of gifts accompany that office. Does that make sense? Okay. But the same core runs through these offices or runs through this, this idea that it is, in fact, God who calls, God who places, God who works through the man. And thus, uh, Chemnitz will say here that the grace, help, power, and divine efficacy apply, according, again, caveat, according to each one's measure, to those who have been immediately called in a legitimate way, justice to those immediately called. All right, so picking back up where we left off, some six lines into the answer, Paul declares this regarding Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6, and lest anyone think that this applies only to those who have indeed been called immediately, but by the apostles themselves, he says, 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the grace which has been given you by prophecy, with the laying on of hands of the presbytery, okay, so that, or laying on of the hands of the elders. So as the elders lay their hands upon, um, upon the one selected, whether that's you know, Timothy in this case or another, um, there is a gift that is given by the prophecy and by the laying on of the hands. Grace, Paul calls it. Do not neglect the grace which has been given you. That office which has been given you is chiefly in view. Um, I'm, I just don't want to make too big of a deal about it, but I do think that when God calls you into an office, he gives you gifts to fulfill that office. I just think that that's how he works. I don't think you get some kind of indelible character you know, where you become some sort of person you never were before or some kind of ubermensch or superman or before you you know if you're a mere mortal you can't institute the sacraments but now because of this you can i mean all of these are roman catholic aberrations and false ways of thinking uh, that have no scriptural bearing and are rightly denied by lutherans but i think the idea that god doesn't pour out gifts upon pastors so that they would be able to conduct their ministries in a way that pleases him and is efficacious. I think that that's also going too far. I think that God does, in fact, do that. So I think that, I mean, even if you want to just take that as my personal view, I don't care. Um, I think that that's part of what Paul's saying here when he says that the grace, um, do not neglect the grace which has been given you by prophecy. That's That's preaching. Don't think of future foretelling here. That's preaching. With the laying on of hands of the presbytery. So, that's the together, that's the ordination. All right, continuing, and in 1 Timothy 4.16, he writes regarding the efficacy of the ministry itself. And when the Corinthians measure the efficacy of the ministry in their church on the basis of the persons called either immediately or immediately, likewise on the basis of 
diversity of gifts and ministers, Paul cries out first. Corinthians 3, 5 and following, who is Apollos, etc. And for this reason, Paul, who otherwise strongly emphasizes his apostolic call, nevertheless, in the subscription of several epistles, modestly adds also others immediately called. Thus, Timothy signed 2 Corinthians together with Paul. So someone immediately called and immediately called, both with the same authority or imprimatur in this case. All right. Likewise, not sure exactly if that's Philippians or uh, Philemon, PH. And CL, I'm guessing, is Colossians. Sothenes signed 1 Corinthians. Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus together signed 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And I briefly looked at this to see if I could tell what he was talking about and I couldn't. So um, maybe I need to take a deeper dive on that, but I'm not going to be able to answer your questions on that particular point. And it may well be that that's, um, some of that's transmitted via church tradition too. I don't know. All right, well, that's the answer then, is that, yeah, regardless of the man, um, there's an office. That's the point of, and regardless whether he's called immediately or immediately, he's the man put into that office. That office is efficacious. You shouldn't, and to some degree too, then you shouldn't pay attention to the particular man. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. I'm of Christ. <laughs> that would be the super annoying answer. You can tell, seeking to undercut everybody else. Um, that kind of sectarianism, that kind of glumming onto one man in particular because of his particular gifts, these are errors already detected in the first century church and rebuked. Um, it's the particular man in the office is no man. It's Christ working through the office who happens, that happens to be held by that man. Okay. So far, so good? All right, so then... Question 21, what then are the regular means that God wants to use for a immediate call? For a immediate call, God ordinarily does not use the ministry of angels, but the ministry of his church, which is a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. For to it, as to his spouse, has Christ entrusted the keys of the kingdom. That is, to the church, Christ has given the keys of the kingdom, and the church is his bride. It's where the marital analogy that I used earlier breaks down significantly. No, the pastor is not married to the church or the church to the pastor. Good gracious. Christ is married to the church and the church to the pastor, or maybe more properly, betrothed and soon to be membered, uh, uh, married when Revelation 21 and 22 take place at the end of the age. Matthew 18.18 um, is the citation there for the entrusting of the keys of the kingdom. Remember, that's at the end of, if your brother sins against you, what should you do? Go to him by yourself and tell him his fault. That you may gain your brother. If he won't listen to you, tell it to uh, two or three others that they may go with you. And then um, tell it to the church. And then if still he will not hear the church, treat him as a tax collector or sinner. And so that's the exercise of the keys to retain sins in that case. 
Paul writes, likewise, Chemnitz writes, he, capital H, entrusted the word and the sacraments, <clears throat> citations from Romans, and briefly, all things are the church, are of the church, both the ministry and the ministers. And that's true, and we can kind of get ourselves wound around the axle here on this point, but it's just important to be able to think fluidly a little bit. When you're talking about the church, it includes the ministerium. Because properly speaking, our ontology, even though we hold the pastoral office, we're still royal priests. That's our ontology, just as you are royal priests. So um, we can talk about the church as just encompassing all royal priests, a tiny portion of which hold the office of the pastoral ministry, and do so in this life. Okay. Um, but then another way we can talk about it is we can make a distinction between um, the laity and the clergy, between those who hold the office and those who do not. And so we can talk about church and ministries if they were two different things. Just to be able to think about it in those two different categorical ways is really helpful, not only for understanding the scriptures, but then understanding theology up to the Reformation and through it. I was going to ask, or I was just thinking about the a vacancy in a church and the way the, pro, the proper process and we're talking about here of selecting a pastor. Uh, is it appropriate to have sample sermons get brought in or should good question you know yeah it's a really good question and kind of a hot button issue when have i ever shied away from those though i'll still share my opinion um it is important for us to recognize in principle that the right of a calling congregation doesn't have to fit any form except that form which the calling congregation chooses sometimes it's helpful not always Sometimes it's helpful to imagine a congregation of like three people or five people or something. As long as they're all agreed upon the process and who they want to call and how it's going to happen, that's, that's good enough, right? There's no set of constitu- congregational constitution of bylaws that falls from the sky that everybody has to follow, okay? So it's important for us to realize like when we now get brass tacks specific, with our congregation, we've all agreed to these governing documents and the way laid out therein. So we're going to conduct ourselves according to those governing documents, and then we're going to arrive upon uh, the man that we're going to then call to the office. Does that make sense? Okay. I don't know if that gets close enough to answer your question, or if you're, or if I well, kind of I, lost track of the I guess specific. I'm looking at the purest sense, uh, assuming there's very little or minimal. What would the optimal church uh, you know, based on what we're, the book we're studying, mm-hmm. um, it sounds like reviewing the way he delivers is. He- oh, that was the specific, yeah, question. Sorry about that. Yeah, I don't want to. I had built right up to that point and then failed to answer. I don't. So I don't want to in any way limit or curtail a congregation's freedom to go through whatever process it sees fit. I mean, that is the business of the church in a local congregation. But I do think that there, there are some warnings we should have that we not have our minds infiltrated by the mind of American business practices. We should entrust ourselves more faithfully and more innocently toward God. And so that particular question, you can see why it's controversial. Is this an intrusion of American business? You want to kind of try out the product before you get it. You want to compare this product and that product or these goods and services over and against those goods and services. 
And when our fathers from several generations ago first entertained these questions, they first kind of arose in the church, like specifically in this form, should you call the man to come and deliver a guest sermon or a guest teaching so you can try him out? Their answer was unequivocally, no, you should not. That's the intrusion. I mean, they were saying this even like 100 years ago or more. They were saying that's an intrusion of the business world and the, pr- and the principles of the world, pragmatism and all of this into the congregation. It doesn't belong there. Now, why doesn't it belong there? That's the thorny question, too. It doesn't belong there because we're all already unified in doctrine, and it shouldn't matter all that much if it's Smith or Jones or Rhodey or this other guy. Um, They're going to come and conduct the ministry of our shared confessions. They're going to conduct the liturgy and the divine service according to the way that we all generally do it. So that's the assumption behind why our fathers are just like, well, there's no point to it. All you're doing, all you've isolated is just this particular man's personality and gifts over and against this particular man's personality and gifts. Have those conditions changed? Yes, sadly so. So in what ways? Well, you can't trust that just blindly calling someone from the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod roster, he's going to come in and conduct a decent liturgy. He may want to change everything, roll in the TV screens, put himself on stage with fog machines. You don't know that anymore. Um, Similarly, his preaching. He may secretly hold that Rick Warren is the greatest preacher to have ever lived, and every sermon he preaches is going to be a little mini Rick Warren sermon. So then does that mitigate, and should we then now in fact explore and vet those things of a man? All right, that's the other side of the coin. So I am sympathetic when uh, congregations want to do that if they really don't know who they're dealing with. I'm sympathetic to that. I, I can hardly think there's anything wrong with looking up a guy online and listening to a few of his sermons randomly to see if he preaches faithfully. But what I would still be opposed to is this idea that we, from our narrow human wisdom, are going to pick this guy because we think he's more charming or a little more funny, or this guy because, you know, he's a little better looking and combs his hair in a certain way. These would be not good things to do, good things to analyze in calling a man into the, into the office of the holy ministry. So... How's that for a kind of non-answer? I've tried to paint both sides of the coin and leave congregational autonomy with also just that warning in place that it's really easy to slip into a consumeristic, hey, we want the designer pastor for our congregation, when in fact God frequently doesn't work that way. God frequently works best when we simply entrust ourselves to him. It's kind of why, I, you know, not even tongue-in-cheek, I've looked at you know, the book of Acts, and they get down to two qualified men, and then they draw lots, cast lots, and that's the guy. I'm kind of a fan of that. I think that there's a lot of wisdom. You get two or three or four candidates that are all qualified. You've vetted them enough to know they're not going to come in and ruin the divine service or um, preach like Rick Warren or something like this, and um, that you think they're all qualified, then just leave it there and let God decide 
via something like the casting of lots rather than fight over this particular man's style or he's a better teacher but he's a better preacher but he's better at pastoral care but he's got more experience but he's better looking and on and on ad nauseum where then everybody gets bent out of shape. Um, how about uh, the seminary graduates in what sense? Yes, exactly. Exactly. I, I'm not opposed to solid congregations um, calling. Again, there's this kind of bias that if you're, a, if you're a solid congregation, you've got a lot of people, you've got a lot of activities, you've got a lot of demands, that you'd be reticent to call somebody out of the seminary because you just don't think they'd be, up, they'd be up for the task. And I think that there's a certain kind of wisdom to that, to looking at the stewardship of it. But it can also, on the other side, lead to a kind of arrogance of like, well, unless we've got a man with X number of experience and X number of online audience, we're just not even considering him. <laughs> no, no. In fact, I know of a congregation that um, uh, had a pastor who was very faithful and very well known, and they opted and selected to call someone out of the seminary. And I think it was like a completely wholesome move completely wholesome move because there was this idea in the congregation of kind of like well we've got to get somebody to match our former pastor oh what a toxic place because you you know you, I, I mean what a toxic position that's all i mean what a toxic position to be in where then you're being judged are you filling the shoes of the former pastor or not so what a beautiful wholesome thing to say hey this is god's office and god's ministry Let's take a man who might not be ready, but let's shape and form him into the man that God would have him be in this place, and then he'll be wonderful for us. And so there's a, there's a really neat, actual, and real story of a congregation doing a very wholesome thing, calling a seminarian, and as far as I know, it's been working out wonderfully. No, no, no. So, yeah, if you're going to call from the seminary, in some respects you're entrusting yourself to the seminary to pair your congregation with a man who's going to be, you know. So if a place like Faith, just because we have, we have a very active congregation relative to other congregations out there. Um, I, I don't know if you know this, but we do. There are many congregations out there where you get one service on Sunday and one Bible study, and you get one Bible study a week. And that's what you get. I don't know what I'd do with myself personally, uh, but that's what you get. Okay, so the seminary wants to look at your congregation, and then they want to try to pair you with a man who has that capacity himself. You know, is this a man who can grow into a very active parish? Um, then they'll work to send you that guy. So. There is, um, that's what immediate call is, is there is human wisdom and human stewardship involved. And there is prayer for wisdom and knowledge of how to place men involved. But ultimately, there's a recognition that this is the hand of God working through fallible people to bring about a certain outcome. Okay, so far so good? All right. Was there, was there another? Oh, we're at time. Thank <laughs> you. All right, we uh, didn't make it as far as I thought we would make it, but that's okay. Um, if, if you are learning and if this is valuable to you, that's what this class is in fact about. Next week, we will pick up on page 33. The Lord be with you.